So for those of you uh, who may not be aware, just because you're coming to service, uh, you're actually part of Compassion Fest. Compassion Fest has been here all weekend. There's been a weekend of activities celebrating compassion in action. And the theme this year is compassion is a verb, an activity, things that we do. Today, we are having the great fortune of having this event co-sponsored by Two Rivers Unitarian Universalists. So thank you so much. And uh, just a few words for those of you, uh, if you haven't been to the event, we still have some more activities coming up, including the closing film, Love and Bananas, uh, a really poignant event. So hopefully you can uh, participate in that as well. Uh, after the, the panel discussion today, we will also have refreshments as usual. And uh, for those of you coming to the event for the first time, there'll be refreshments out in the Callaway room. So please uh, make sure to socialize and spend some time. All the donations, all the activities uh, of this weekend go to the Compassion Fest. We're already planning for next year. It's been an incredible success. So please, thank you all for all that you've done uh, to make this such an amazing event. Now, we have an esteemed panel, and uh, John Masters, a very wonderful addition to be the moderator from Grassroots TV. Um, and I'll let him do the formal introductions when we begin, but as this is part of Two Rivers Unitarian Universalist, I'm going to turn it over to Reverend Shauna Foster for the lighting of the ch chalice. And rumor has it there's a bunch of fans on. light the chalice uh, every Sunday morning to start our hour of worship together and we usually have a short reading to go with the chalice lighting and I've prepared this special reading for this gathering today. Our different paths come together in this holy place. Graced by the history of our religious heritage, let us be mindful of the forces deep within which call us to be more than we are. May this time bring rest and renewal, comfort and challenge May we be reminded here of our highest aspirations and be inspired to bring our gifts of love and service to the altar of humanity. May we know once again that we are not isolated beings, but that we are connected in mystery and in wonder to each other, to this community, and to the universe. Thank you, Shauna. And as we begin, just wanted to let everyone know we are live streaming right now. So Grassroots TV uh, has had the incredible opportunity to provide a live stream. So we are joined potentially with people all over the world as we engage in this dialogue on compassion. Thanks so much, John Masters. Uh, thank you, John. And you can share this uh, live stream right now if, if you have your phones on you. Um, 
at uh, Grassroots Community Network uh, Facebook. Uh, we're going live on Facebook and also live on YouTube. And uh, if you want to share it later, it will always be archived on the Grassroots Community Network uh, YouTube channel, which you can get to by uh, going to our website, uh, grassrootstv.org. And uh, if you do go to the YouTube channel, please uh, subscribe. That, that helps Grassroots out. I heard that would be a compassionate thing to do. It, it would, it would, it, <laughs> yeah. It would be. It Compassion some, and action. It would relieve some of our suffering. Subscribe to <laughs> Grassroots TV. Um, so th thank you all for, for coming today, and, and uh, thank you to the UUs for uh, allowing us to join your service this morning. Um, our, this morning's panel members represent uh, four local spiritual organizations. Shauna Foster is the minister of the Two Rivers Universal, uh, Unitarian Universalist Congregation who meet here every Sunday morning. Uh, rabbi Emily Siegel is the rabbi of the Aspen Jewish Congregation, a uh, Reformed synagogue in the, who meets in the Aspen Chapel at the, at the roundabout. Uh, Lance Norton is the lead pastor of the Mid Valley Church that also meets in the Third Street Center in the Callaway Room uh, for Christian services on Friday evenings. And uh, you know John Bruna, he's the spiritual director of the Way of Compassion Dharma Center here in the Third Street Center in beautiful Carbondale. And um, earlier in his life, uh, he was an ordained Buddhist monk studying and practicing both in India and in the United States. We often feel uh, sympathy for uh, others who are suffering and, and we can feel empathy for those who are suffering in ways that uh, perhaps we have suffered. Uh, and, but compassion, which is what this weekend has been about, is more than those feelings of either sympathy or, or empathy. Um, this weekend we have said that compassion is the wish or desire to remove suffering from ourselves and others. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, uh, Rabbi, and, and, and please join in. Uh, let's uh, engage in a conversation here. Um, uh, as, as you wish. Um, Rabbi, how is compassion related to uh, sympathy and empathy? Um, do some think that uh, they're being compassionate when they're just being empathetic. So I would say that from the perspective of Judaism, the word for compassion in Hebrew is rachamim. Um, and the and Hebrew is organized on three-letter roots, and the root of that is rechem, which is Hebrew for womb. So rachamim, compassion, comes from this maternal, parental relatedness. So while I think it's certainly, from the Jewish perspective, related to empathy, related to sympathy... It is action spurred by that sense of deep connection 
which God willing should be with everyone, not just with those who we identify with, sympathize with, empathize with um, initially. So I think that um, all of these things are so interrelated that to tease them out is interesting, but I think the, the core is this deep connectedness to all other people. Um, time and time again in Torah, we hear um, the five books of Moses, the core text of Judaism, that we hear that we need to protect those who are vulnerable, widows, strangers, orphans, those classical categories of those who are in positions of less power, positions of vulnerability, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And that isn't just about you've been there, but that collectively, mythically, historically being there means that we should always get it. And that it's not just that we understand the other, but we are them. And in a blink, it could be us, but, but we are them and they are us. There is, there, that distinction is a false distinction. So um, it's one of my very favorite words in Hebrew, rachamim. Compassion, woominess, right? This maternal caring. Yeah, I, I love what you're talking about um, with the idea of the woominess of it. And it kind of obviously, <laughs> woominess, is that term. a word? Yeah, <laughs> the woominess of it. But I just love that idea that I feel like, you know, sympathy and empathy can sometimes be fleeting emotions in our lives. We feel those for a period and then they kind of go away. Whereas, you know, as a Christian, I view compassion as something that should be a, a part of who we are woven into our being that, that is evident in everyday life, not just when we see something difficult or when we um, interact and, and can empathize with someone. Those things kind of tend to go away, but I really love that idea that, you know, compassion is something that sort of is within us and, and should be a sort of interwoven part of us. So I'll dive in for a moment and just uh, mention that, you know, when we think about empathy, and you may have heard the word uh, compassion fatigue. Some people get compassion fatigue. Uh, and we would say that there's no such thing. What we really struggle with sometimes is empathy fatigue. I feel your pain. I feel your suffering. I feel the difficulties. If I work in hospice care, if I am uh, caring for someone, uh, we can get worn down. And empathy, this feeling of connection, can lead to hopelessness and despair. But properly applied, empathy can be triggering compassion. And then compassion becomes, as they talked about, a force, an inspiration, something beyond the, the feeling, but an actual movement. And so it becomes this resource that I can draw from. Compassion does not make you sad. When I'm sad, it gives rise to compassion. And compassion then becomes an energy with which I can use. And the interesting neuroscience on this today is that it's actually different parts of the brain. Empathy is activating a different part of the brain than compassion does. And compassion then becomes a resource that we can inspire us into action. Uh, John, if, if compassion is a wish or, or uh, desire to remove suffering from ourselves and others, doesn't that make compassion itself a form of suffering? <laughs> He's trying to be tricky, isn't he? 
So let me explain it to you like this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In order to trigger compassion, there in sense needs to be suffering. Uh, but compassion is always the response to it. So it's there before. And that's what I was mentioning, that some people as they train, oh, if I'm going to learn compassion, I'm going to feel sad all the time. But it's quite the opposite. As I see the struggle, the suffering, then compassion arises. It doesn't work the other way around. So we don't need to go looking for suffering. In our normal daily lives, there's a lot of mental and emotional suffering. It's part of the human experience that we have. We're going to have loss. We're going to have struggles. We're going to have challenges. And so compassion then literally becomes the antidote to that suffering that's already present. So I would say compassion is not inherent in suffering. Rather, that it is a response to. Uh, but the desire to do... Uh, You're talking it, about the desire. The desire uh, is... The world is not right, and so I'm, I, my compassion wants to correct that. Mm. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So we would say that fundamentally there's some things that we need to be taught, and there's some things that we need to be acclimated to such as anger and hatred and things of this nature, that, that separateness, you talked about the equality that we have, the equanimity that we have, um, just our sure value in being a human being. Uh, but they say that actually, and you can achieve this in a meditation, is that our very nature itself is compassion and love. That when you eliminate mental constructs, when people meditate, these great yogis that they've done all these uh, neuroscientists and the testing on, is that when they actually rest all of the cognitive activities, the base level, compassion's present. And there's no suffering in that aspect. Uh, so what it really is, is a desire to return to your natural state. And our natural state is not one of suffering, but one of compassion and love. Uh, I'll start, Shauna. Um, do you find in in uh, in your ministry or just in life that that some people seem to naturally be more compassionate and or, or more um, uh, sort of the way some people are better at, at are naturally better at math? <laughs> <laughs> Is no. it difficult? For, <laughs> is it difficult for some people to be compassionate? Uh, no, I agree with John um, that I feel like biologically it's shown that most of us are oriented towards compassion, and I think that the way that you are formed in life tells you how you should act with compassion, or whether you should believe in the illusion that you are separate from other people and you should cut off compassion that you feel towards other people. So Unitarian Universalist theology actually believes that people are born without sin. That's the Unitarian part of us. So we actually theologically believe that most people are born inherently good and inherently compassionate towards other people. Um, and we, I think that we think that the compassion is, is what Emily says is it's, it's withheld from other people, or what John says is the, the suffering that comes off of the separateness, and it's sort of like a scarcity mindset that says, well, we only have this much, and there is no more. 
I mentally only have this much that I can give to other people, and if I listen to the news, I won't have enough to talk to my mom tonight. You know, <laughs> and that's not true. <laughs> you, if you are courageous enough to try, you can listen to the news and your mother and everything all at the same time. It's, it's when you lean into the compassion, you will be surprised how big your heart is and how much it just continues to grow. But we, there's a lot of things that we have to do and spiritual practices I think really help with addressing that basic fear that I'm not enough, I don't have enough, there isn't enough. And once that fear is overcome, the compassion is endless. Right. I, to emphasize that, I mean, I think that there's a lot in what you're saying that I identify with, and from a Jewish perspective, also is really well aligned. Compassion's not a zero-sum game, mm -hmm. right? There's not an, a limited supply that we have to ration off, exactly. Um, and similarly, in Judaism, there's no concept of original sin, um, nor sin that's passed down generationally. Um, but we're taught that as humans, we each have a yetzer tov and a yetzer ra, a good inclination and an evil inclination. Not that these are outside forces, this is part of us. It means that we have infinite potential for whatever path we choose. If we choose a path of challenge and difficulty, or if we choose a path of righteousness, and that every single day we wake up and we are presented with choices about how we act in the world, and essentially the muscle that we are working, if it's evil or if it's good, that's the muscle that's built. That's what becomes strong within ourselves, that one good deed leads to another and one negative action can also lead to another, right? But that we are, have infinite potential and God willing, we use it for good. And I think that what, you're, what you said about practices, right? It's a, it's a practice, you know, being good in the world being compassionate, being mindful, these are practices that, muscles that we get to build up um, in the world. Yeah, I, um, obviously as a Christian, I would land somewhat on a different spectrum than the three up here in the idea of original sin. Um, you know, we, we look at the Bible as kind of the, the guideline for that and, and believe that, you know, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve committed that original sin and therefore humans are inherently broken um, and that's obviously where as a Christian we come to that idea that Jesus Christ is that Savior but I would definitely agree that that compassion is not something that is is limited um, it's not a zero-sum game you know it's something that um, that we all offer freely or should offer freely but it's also something that that you know we believe that Christ did it throughout his life and modeled that idea of compassion so that humanity would see, okay, we are broken, but there is a way to fix us. It's not a, a hopeless situation, you know? And so when we talk about compassion being something um, that can be suffering in itself, I, I agree with John and the idea that compassion is the response to that. Compassion is the hope that we have for suffering. And, and all the things when we look around the world and see the, the brokenness and the hurting around that, you know, we can look at that compassion as a response um, to that as opposed to saying, oh, man, I feel terrible because I, I want to help everybody. You know, and that feeling sort of comes and goes like we talked about fleeting emotions, but just the idea that, you know, compassion. I love these shirts that say compassion is a verb. You know, $20 compassion. at the front. <laughs> hey, we'll plug for you there. 
but, but they are beautiful. It is a, a, a great way to think about compassion being a, a response and not so much of a, a feeling of, of oppression, but instead a response of hope. You know, I just want to tap into what a gift it is to be with you. Uh, and, and I'm sensing a theme, and I like to touch on those universal themes, uh, like original sin. Uh, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, uh, when we come into this, this body, I'm bringing all my karmic imprints from previous life. So we believe in so life to life. And in one way, that's original sin. I'm coming in, I'm, I'm imprisoned from this activities that have limited me from recognizing my divine nature and like you know whether it's Jesus uh, helping me find my actual connection and divine nature or you know we look at it from a Buddhist perspective recognizing that Buddha nature that's already present that's not broken but it's obscured it's covered up and the mental afflicted states I have well I brought them with me <laughs> So that's the difference, but it still operates, I think, in that same sort of functional level of sort of original sin. I'm coming in, I'm broken, but, but the sense of I'm broken isn't my true self. It's the human nature that I've brought with me from previous karmic imprints. Uh, and so there's some common mechanics, but uh, different religions approach it, I think, in some different perspectives. Uh, and the whole path of Buddhism is to, uh, you know, find and recognize that uh, Buddha nature that you have and deal with those mentally afflicted states of separateness that was mentioned here and uh, recognize our interdependence and basic fundamental divine nature. Is, is original sin this separateness? Is that, is that what happened? It was, is, when, when mankind was kicked out of the Garden of Eden, was it because he, uh, of, of um, becoming self-aware, of becoming separate? Yeah, I mean, so in the Christian tradition, we would look at it and say that man was created in divine nature, created to have a perfect relationship with God and to live in, you know, in immortality, I mean, to live forever uh, with God and, and through man, um, and obviously the idea that Satan came in and, and outside force um, was present and convinced man to eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil because we, there was, you know, according to the Christian tradition, there was no suffering in the world before this original sin took place. And, and they were aware of that. So I wouldn't say it was they became self-aware. It, um, it was rebellion, you know, and it was a direct choice to say, okay, we know what what God wants for us and we know what we believe the plan is but we're going to choose to do the thing that is sometimes self-destructive and I, I think that's evident we see it every day of course you can't always watch the news right because it'll make you depressed and feel terrible <laughs> but we do see that self-destructive tendency in humanity there's many many times that that we do things that we know are not good for us I mean you know we know that we should eat healthy you know we know what we should be eating but sometimes when that piece of cake is sitting there, you know, I'm, I'm going to grab that piece of cake instead of those carrots, right? I know it's bad for me, right? But I like the cake better. And so that idea that humanity is, is in constant rebellion um, and not always doing what is best for us, I think, is where original sin came in. And not so much the self-awareness of it, but just the idea that we chose rebellion at that point. It's interesting because... Um I mean, this is a little bit of a, a silly aside, 
that there's the tree of eternal life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if I were there, maybe eternal life would be the one, right, <laughs> that you take a bite of and not the knowledge of good and evil. Um, so from a Jewish perspective, there, it's not that there wasn't sin in the Garden of Eden. Of course, from a progressive Jewish perspective, it's all what the story is supposed to teach us, not to take it literally, historically, as a thing that actually happened, but what lesson are we supposed to draw from it, right? But that with knowledge, it was self-knowledge of vulnerability, of our ability to be good or to be evil, our, the knowledge of our ability to have free will in the world that was eye-opening, right? And there's a phrase that the rabbis of old used that all is known and yet free will is given. Right, the God isn't the puppeteer pulling the strings of what humans do in the world, but God knows us and knows how we act in the world. And if you put a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you say, don't touch that big red button, don't take a bite from that tree, what, what's gonna happen? We're gonna take a bite from that and our eyes will be opened. So was there sin? Yes, but that was the start of everything we know, the complicated, messy, beautiful thing that is this world and is this life. Um, in Judaism, there are actually many explanations for how the world was created, and there's one that actually I was reminded of when we're talking about brokenness in the world. Um, Kabbalah is Jewish mysticism, and mysticism is one of those big words, right? But basically, practically, in any religion, it means the practices we go through to try to decrease the distance between ourselves and the divine, right? Decreasing that distance between us and the divine. And so, like basically every religion, we have Kabbalah, mysticism, and it's incredibly fascinating and complex, but there's a story of how the world was created that I think is the one I most identify with among Judaism's explanations of the world, and it is that before the world was created, everything was God. God was everything, absolutely infinite, nothing else other than God. And in order to create the world, God had to make space for the world. And God did tsum contraction. God contracted God's self, made God's self smaller. But that action was so powerful that the vessels that were part of God that contained the light and the goodness of the universe were shattered in that tsum in that contraction. And in that moment, at the very same moment space for humanity was created, brokenness entered the world. The light scattered. And our role as humans is to be partners with God in gathering together the light and healing the vessels. That we're partners with God in the healing of the world and of the universe, and that's our sacred role. And so when I think about also, how powerful does that make us, right? Um, so when I think about brokenness in the world and I think about compassion, compassion is inextricable with that process of healing the world, that that's the sacred action that we have to take on to create healing and goodness and compassion. You want to tie all that together? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I really like... Um, there's a consistent theme in the things that you, you're saying um, in that uh, the compassion is the wombing and the creation story of God at the same time. 
um, and how the separateness that we have, the brokenness that we feel is actually a part of creation. And so how can we be who we are without those broken parts too? It is also a part of us and compassion is a way to respond to that. Um, that that's all I'm gonna say. Uh, thank you for that, that great discussion. Um, let's move on to uh, giving us an example of how your organization practices compassion in, in action. Uh, Lance, tell us about your, your business and the orphanage and what you're doing. Yeah, so, um, you know, kind of our one of our big theme verses um, for our church is James 1.27, which says that there's no truer religion than to care for orphans and widows and their suffering. And so um, as a church, we kind of got together and, and centered around that and said, what are some of the things that, that we can do as a church to make a difference both here in Carbondale and, and at the world at large? And uh, my wife and I have been working with um, an orphanage in Zambia called New Day Orphanage um, since their inception in 2010. Um, and we decided, you know what, we could do something here that not only our church could be involved in, but that our whole community could be involved in um, helping this orphanage. So we started the coffee shop called Kalundu Coffee, um, which literally it means mountain in Chitonga, Kalundu does, uh, which is the language spoken at the orphanage. Um, and all of, our, all of our profits go um, to benefit the orphanage, and it's set up in a way that um, the money that goes to them they can use for whatever they need. Um, and it's often aimed at compassion type of projects. So generally they have enough finances coming in to sponsor the children that are at the orphanage. But in all of the surrounding villages where there is a, a continuous need um, for compassion, you know, sometimes if they have a, a, a drought year, there's very much a danger of starvation in the area. And so they'll provide food. They've set up a, um, a maze, a corn grinding mill that everyone from the area can come and use together. Um, they're drilling wells on other people's properties that are community wells. So things like that, th that money um, that we send from here ends up going to, to work on these sort of compassion type of projects, not just in inside of New Day Orphanage, but in all the local areas surrounding. Um, Emily? So um, there are a number of ways that I would say that our organization practices compassion. Um, tikkun olam, which means healing the world, comes from that same Kabbalistic creation story, um, is a big part of our organization, um, both in terms of direct service, um, uh, interaction with the homeless. We co-hosted the homeless shelter in Aspen this past winter when its typical location was under construction. Um, as well as advocacy work that we're, we're working on stepping into organizationally, joining together with True and the Sanctuary Coalition, um, and really living out our values in that way, um, which the situation in our country, I think, seems to call more and more for. Um, and, you know, I think a lot about what we do with our kids. Um, we have kids in our Hebrew school coming up through Bar Mitzvah and beyond, and a big part of what we teach them in our school is about those Jewish values which are the basis for compassionate action. And as they come through Bar Mitzvah, which is the entry point into technical Jewish adulthood, though they're clearly not adults at 13 years old, um, we ask them to do a tikkun olam project, to 
based on their own interests and what the things they care about in the world to take on um, a project through six months or a year before they come bar bat mitzvah of social action, charity work, volunteer work in the world, sort of as a trial ground for the Jewish adults that they're becoming and the way they're going to live in the world. Um, so lots of things that we do. Um, though we don't have a cool coffee project like yours for an orphanage, that's really cool. Do, do you have examples of what the uh, young yeah, um, adults are doing? There's a young woman, um, she had, uh, I think about six years ago, her 17-month-old brother passed away unexpectedly. And so she's currently raising money for SUDC, which is Sudden Unexplained Death in Childhood Organization to help find causes. So clearly something that's very important to her family. Um, they've channeled that grief into this compassionate action. Um, of raising money for this cause, helping families going through the same. Um, one young man, his parents are pediatricians, um, and um, he, as a young child, loved helicopters, but and was so excited to see hospital helicopters go by, but then realized what that meant. Um, and so he created a project where um, a bear or a stuffed animal with a recording device in it is given to a child before they go on a hospital transport helicopter that their parents can record a message on to give them comfort while they're on that helicopter ride. Um, and raised money by himself to fund that project through the hospital. Um, so it's really every single kid chooses something different and we talk about what they care about and their experiences and it moves them to a project. That's beautiful. Um, Jonna, uh, it's inherent in the Unitarian uh, that everyone has, it's kind of coming from a different direction. And, and it must be a challenge for a Unitarian leader to uh, wrangle the cats and get them all going in, <laughs> in, in a particular direction. Is that true? No, I don't know. <laughs> um, it hasn't been hard for me. Um, yes, Unitarian Universalism, our theology comes out of our lived experience. I do feel like you're right, that it is coming like from, from it seems like other religions comes from the divine experience out into the world, and ours seems to be, this is what we experience into the world, and how is that divine? And so that's why you find Unitarian Universalists often in really radical, even political movements or with really radical ideas like the feminization of religion, um, the uh, supporting different political aspects. And I, I, for me, I think the idea in Unitarian Universalism is that you have, um, I know it's, I'm presenting it as duality, but it's really not. But there's a part of you that is like in the plane, on the plane right, that is this spiritual part, that is this divine part. And we like to say, okay, but then what happens when you land? You know, what, what is happening on the ground? What's going on in the airport? <laughs> not a very spiritual place to be, really, but you have to deal with it. And so you will find Unitarian Universalists, um, you know, thinking about that, and if, and if they can't handle the airport, then get back on the plane 
to figure it out. So, you know, when you land, can you deal with the suffering in the world? And how do you deal with that suffering? And um, I think where our name is actually, Unitarian means to be all united, um, this togetherness, and then the universalism is um, the divinity that is expressed universally. So it's like the one and the many at, at the same time. Um, and so for us, practically, um, we have worship services. Let me back up. Two Rivers Unitarian Universalist, our mission statement is to be a springboard for personal and societal transformation. And that's the plane and the plane landing. Like, how are you different than you were a year ago? And how have those differences made a difference in your community? How is it better than it was a year ago? Um, and so there's actually a lot of different projects. We were helping out with Standing Rock, you know, that's the question, how, how can you respond to environmental degradation and the call to be somewhere um, as a sacred site? Um, how can we, uh, we do the extended table and then we also started this sanctuary because we wanted to bring the community together. It seemed like politics was scapegoating a certain type of people the most and we wanted to say, but those people live in our community. That, that is us. That isn't someone else. That's us in Carbondale. 60% of the kids in my school are Latino. A lot of those people have undocumented parents or are undocumented themselves. It's not somebody else. It's not over there. It's not on a border. It's right here in Carbondale. And so how can we keep this community together? And that's really what the Sanctuary um, Project has done, is to keep a woman and her family here as part of our community in the parsonage. And the United States government respects that as our religious freedom. And we have been building up the Sanctuary Movement to involve other interfaith partners like the Aspen Jewish Congregation um, to, to say we want to keep our community together and how can we all belong together. And if you can't do that, if you can't be compassionate, or if you say, I don't want my community to be together, there are some people that shouldn't be there, get back in the plane and talk to me <laughs> about how does that work with your divinity and how should you be in the world? Fantastic. Um, it, it seems like the UUs aren't as shy about getting involved in these kind of edgy political, edgy political realm that that others maybe uh, don't don't feel are, is is part of their mission or. No, um, I, I I would say that most of the religious communities that I have come across are very deeply spiritual and are very concerned with people's suffering as they come through the door and want to keep people's community together. I think it's just our Unitarian Universalist tradition of what are we experiencing? That's the question we're asking each other first. And then how does that matter is the second question. So we're just a little flipped in, in that way and that because we've really been political since we formed um, there's a lot of founding fathers and history into that, get, getting burned at the stake, a lot, a lot, a lot. So it's kind of to, inherent to our survival. We have to be political because we could not exist unless the power structures in society allowed us to exist. And I think there's a lot of religions that actually are that way, that they have to be political in order to survive. Um. The one thing I'll say in terms of religion and politics is, I think, um, I mean, I'll, I'll say that 
if I venture into the political, I think it's many, if many clergy do, um, then we have to be careful because it's such a divided time. And I think we want to make sure that we're not creating greater division, and yet we're speaking to, you know, it's like, Rabbi, don't talk about politics, but be current and relevant. Well, um, <laughs> um, but um, there are so few places now, it seems, where we can be in community with people who believe, have deeply held beliefs that are quite different than our own on things we care about deeply. And so I think one of the things I believe we're called to any of us in spiritual community is to strive toward that connection rather than division. Doesn't mean agreeing all the time. Right, in fact, if we're gonna talk about things that are really, really important in this world, we're not gonna agree all the time, right? And we have to be able to sit with that and be comfortable with that together. Um, but when people say to me, and it happens occasionally that Judaism wasn't supposed to be political, I say, talk to me about a downtrodden servant slave class who stood up to the Pharaoh and overthrew him and left to create a better society. If that's not political. Um, but I think it's about, in spiritual community, how are we present, really present with each other in real relationship with each other, regardless of whether we agree on everything that's important to us. Well, I think, and certainly in evangelical Christianity, there is a broad spectrum of thoughts on religion and politics and how they should intermingle. So I don't pretend to speak for all um, evangelical Christians, but for me personally, I tend to not get as involved on the political side of it because I, I look at our nation's politics um, as a symptom of a larger illness. And when I think about politics, you know, for me to get involved in politics, I say, well, that's, you know, like taking a, a Tylenol when I've got a backache. Well, okay, it might treat the symptom, but the true illness is, is brokenness and maybe lack of compassion in our world. Because I look at, you know, I look at our government and I, I see all of the issues that we have and and especially recently, all of this division that it's created. And I say, gosh, surely it's not just our government policies that are dividing us. It's, it's a deeper issue within us as, as humans and with us, within us as Americans. You know, I've, I've traveled a lot. I've lived abroad. And I've seen different societies, how they react. And everyone's different. No one's necessarily better than the other. But I oftentimes look at us as Americans, and, and it feels to me like our, our response is often that we we treat the symptom maybe because we struggle with dealing with the larger issue. And so, you know, as a Christian, I would say, you know, going back to that original sin idea and the brokenness of man that, you know, perhaps we can look deeper and look for a wholesale change in, in our lives as humans and as people. And as a result of that, our politics will change. I was asked one time, how, how, how can we, um, <laughs> let's see, i got to put this gently. How, how do Christians support our, our current president, and how, how could you elect someone like that? And I said, well, it seems to me that our, this was asked by a, a person from another country. I said, well, it seems to me that oftentimes our elections and the leaders we elect reflect um, deeper issues than just, you know, a political division. We sometimes choose our leaders based on what we feel like they might be able to do instead of looking within ourselves and saying, okay, what can I do right now in my community to help with healing and to help people come together and address the deeper issues. What a wonderful and rich discussion. Um, I really like what you're talking to in terms of, you know, what's more political than being an incredible example of our connection and how we relate to each other. 
because the manifestation of how things work out, there's an undercurrent of how are we treating each other. And John Francis, this incredible environmentalist, has just been an inspiration for me in the sense that he had studied environment for you know, years and years and years. He was silent for 17 years. He didn't talk. He, he got a master's degree and a PhD, and he wrote uh, regulations and taught about oil spills. And he spoke on Earth Day, on the 20th anniversary of Earth Day, because he had a message, something that he had learned in all of his work around environmentalism, and it was this thing that he needed to share, so he spoke after 17 years. And his message was, the environment's not limited to the water, the sun, the earth, the sky. How we treat each other is the environment. We are the environment. And if we're going to change the environment, we need to change how we treat each other because we collectively are the creation of the environment. And if you want to make real substantive change, we need to change how we relate to each other. We need to fix the core root of the problem, which is sometimes we will think us and them. And we'll stick a label on someone. They're a Republican. Well, you know, all Republicans are like that. They're a Democrat. Well, they're like that. They're a liberal. And as soon as the label appears, there's a whole trajectory of just elaboration in my mind about what that kind of person is. And I don't even know them. I don't know what tragedies they've had. I don't know that they volunteer at the school. I don't know any of those things. I stick a label, and they're that. You know, one of the common things is when you see a bumper sticker, right? That bumper sticker being the exact opposite of whatever it is you believe in, instantly someone pull up with that bumper sticker, oh my God, what are they thinking? Those people are sucking up my air. <laughs> you know, I don't even like this person. I, I don't even know if it's their car, <laughs> right? But I've elaborated a whole uh, character of a human being by a bumper sticker on a car and a label I put on it, and I totally missed the point as, as is being put here that for every human being we've met, I bet you our values fundamentally, probably 80 to 90% are the same. We probably value friendship. We probably value you know, that our kids are safe. We probably value you know, trust and dependability in others. We, have these shared values, but based on our orientation, the way we were raised, the experiences we had, whether I was raised in West Virginia or whether I was raised in New York, and the family I was raised in, the way I see the world is going to be a little bit different than the next person. But that doesn't mean we don't share the same values. And so really this idea of compassion is a political action. What is it in me that I can change to have a better connection with you? I just want to say I, I love what John's talking about here because I, I grew up in Oklahoma um, in the Bible Belt and grew up in a Christian church and never had interaction with a Unitarian or a Jew or a Buddhist, never had it. And so my whole life it was just this great mystery to me and I just always assumed, oh, they're different. They're different from me. And, you know, when we moved to, to Wales and since living here, man, we've met some great people that may not have the same religious views as we do, but like John's saying, we share a lot of the same values. Just through conversations we've had in the coffee shop, man, I find that John and I have a lot more in common than I ever thought I would with a Buddhist. Including cake. <laughs> Including cake, right? Yeah. 
But, you know, I just want to, as we talk about compassion and the way that we sort of share that as a group, that, that free and open exchange of ideas and thoughts and, and love for one another is really what makes the difference. And it's one of the things that really does make um, our community unique is we do have a lot of that here, more so than other places. We're not perfect by any means, right? And we've got issues. But I will say, you know, for my part, it's been such a, a privilege um, to be up here with this panel and just, just the idea of, wow, we may have completely different views about religion, but when we really break it down to the core, we can talk about compassion. And I think we all kind of agree on what compassion is and the necessity of it um, in our world. So I, I just want to say I completely agree with what you're talking about. On it. Well, I had another topic, but I think that's a great place to, uh, to finish today. And uh, uh, really appreciate this uh, lively conversation and, and, and basically ending with the uh, uh, understanding that we're, you know, we're coming from slightly different points of view and we have different histories in our traditions and, and uh, in our own lives. Uh, but basically we're all trying to, uh, I guess as the song that we started with, we're all trying to get home. And, and uh, that, that's what we all have in common, and we all need to uh, help each other do that. And let's just thank John Masters and Shauna Foster and Emily and Lance here for this incredible time and energy in this meeting. Did you have something else? Uh, why don't we have a final statement if, you ha if you'd like to. I, I asked for a final statement because I just wanted to share really important news with the community that San this is the 10 month anniversary of Sandra being in sanctuary in a parsonage um, and she's going to get to go free. <laughs> And it happened because of this community's compassion for her and for everyone like her, for all the support and the petitions you signed. And it really does make a difference. I mean, you talked about, we talked about religion and politics, but I feel like I was religious and then my community became politicized. I want my community to come together. And it was politics that came in and said, well, we're going to take away half of it. So I really appreciate all of you who have been compassionate for her. Um, the Parsonage, uh, this Tuesday at 5.30, we're, she's going to announce it, and I would appreciate it if you could be there. We're going to march freely through the streets like she has not been able to do for the last 10 months, and then meet here at the Third Street Center to talk about the other women in sanctuary and have a balloon release. <laughs> Thank you. And also tonight at our town one table, uh, the Carbondale event that brings a lot of people together, there's going to be, um, I think each table is going to have a chair for Sandra to represent that she's still not yet free, not until Tuesday. So, thank you. Thank you. Okay, and I would just like to uh, remind everybody to be invited to come to the Callaway Room for some refreshments, and hopefully you can stay and mingle with some of the folks as well. Uh, any offerings in that donation jar will go to make sure this event can happen next year. And so we thank you all so very much. And if you can make love and elephants tonight, no, love and bananas. <laughs> but it has something to do with elephants. 
and uh, that, yeah, that'll begin later this afternoon, uh, about 2 o'clock. And at 1.30, we'll have the People's Choice Awards from the film selections. That's a free event open to everyone, so please come to the closing ceremony, 1.30, right here. And those of you joining us online, thank you so much for uh, attending virtually. And once again, thank you, John Masters, for taking the time to be such a wonderful moderator.